Thank you for tuning in to the eighth episode of Imagine Human. Today, we're talking to Noor Siddiqui, a Teal Fellow and Stanford University student. Noor is researching genetic screening of embryos to reduce the likelihood of Alzheimer's and other genetic diseases. In this episode, we go in-depth into her research about how this screening technique could decrease the prevalence of diseases in the population, and how one day we might live in a world without chronic diseases. Born to Pakistani immigrants, Noor also shares her personal story of how she first came to be interested in entrepreneurship and her journey as a Teal Fellow. Why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about what you do, what you're studying at Stanford, and you know how you got started? So I'm studying CS in genetics because I've always been interested in like basically the code for life, and specifically I've always been interested in how do you engineer humans. So naturally, now that sequencing has gotten a lot cheaper and a lot more people are getting their genome sequenced, now you suddenly have these computational problems that you can solve. So I thought that the natural tool set that I should pair with understanding genetics is CS. So I know that you did the Teal Fellowship and you got into that right out of high school or even before graduating from high school. How did that happen? Why did you decide to apply? Yeah, so that, that's probably a pretty weird story. So um, I was pretty set on going to college because my parents are immigrants. So to them, college was kind of, uh, you know, it was the American dream for them. That's literally why they came to America was to go to college. Um, so it definitely came as a huge right turn for them, the idea that I was thinking about actually not going to college. Um, when I talked to them about it, they said, oh, I mean, it's not really even worth applying. You don't want to be a, um, a guinea pig for this guy's experiment. Don't do it. It's, it's a bad idea. But I sort of thought that it, it probably made more sense to go ahead and apply. And if I actually got it, then I could make the decision then. And it was just one of those things where I think once you get something, your parents can't be unhappy for you. And then in the excitement of, oh, wow, I got this thing, you, get to, you have a very good bargaining position to be like, oh, I should actually do this. Um, so were you doing stuff in, uh, in high school before that that helped you get into the Teal Fellowship? Why do you think you were picked as a Teal Fellow? Yeah, so I, th I think I was definitely the um, odd one out in terms of uh, people who were selected. So basically, the Teal Fellowship, the, the year I was selected in 2012 was almost all people who were really into tech, basically all like engineers with different types of apps or um, things like that. They're also mostly like sophomores and juniors in college, and I was a high school senior. So for me, my passion at the time was nonprofit. So I was working on, um, since, since my freshman year of high school, on this nonprofit that basically finds, it, it was basically the Teal Fellowship, but for people in the developing world. So we tried to find really talented people who, uh, for whatever reason, were stymied by, by their environment. So my favorite story that I like to tell is about this girl in Afghanistan who her dad and brother died in an accident. So she was just alone with her mom and in Afghanistan. That's a really difficult position to be in. So uh, her and her mom were constantly being uprooted from where they lived because the landlord would make up different excuses about how, um, you know, why the rent would need to be raised. And since there wasn't sort of like a male on the lease, um, that affected her schooling, right? That means that she didn't have, you know, a consistent place to go to school. So, yeah, what we worked on was basically finding her a sponsor, making sure that she had, um, you know, a stable schooling experience, tutoring, laptops. Um, and, yeah, now she's, now she's doing super well. I think she's – so in her application, she, she wrote about how she wanted to be a lawyer to reform these laws in Afghanistan that make it so difficult for, for women to, um, 
I wouldn't even say have a good life, but have a normal, like, reasonable <laughs> life. Uh, so, I'm actually, I should follow up with her. I'm not sure exactly what she's doing. But last I checked, um, she had just done super well in her exams and was, like, off to university. So. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the transition that you had? So, it looked like you were initially doing ending world uh, poverty. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of transitioned into medical technology. Um, can you kind of talk about what prompted that shift um, and kind of the backstory there? Sure. So, I mean, the honest answer is that when I came here, I got extremely disillusioned by um, this whole social entrepreneurship sector. I went to a lot of conferences and met people who I had admired in high school on the internet for running these great organizations. And when I met them in person and talked to them about what they actually did on a daily basis, I um, I was just really sad. I found I felt that they were spending way too much time raising money for things and way too much time focusing on sort of positioning their product, which is in a way like, kind of like this whole poverty porn industry. And uh, that's not to say that all of them are like that, but I just I just found the, the overwhelming flavor of the industry to be um, a little, I guess, a little bit disingenuous. And that's obviously not completely lost in tech, right? In tech, you also have people who are um, maneuvering and there's all, this, there's all this marketing that goes around, you know, how, how do you sell your product? So I got a little bit disillusioned with that and um, I started working on something where I thought there would be a natural business model so there wasn't, it wasn't this whole nonprofit thing, it was for-profit social enterprise. And then with the for-profit social enterprise and then eventually it's sort of moved into health tech because I thought that that was something I would be more interested in longer term and also because um, my sister was in medical school, so we had this natural connection to like doctors and hospitals, and I was doing the whole, um, you know, you know, shadowing and trying to understand problems that way. Can you speak a little bit more about the product that you guys kind of came up with during the Teal Fellowship? Yeah, so when I was doing the Teal Fellowship, the hottest product was Google Glass, and the most natural use case for Google Glass is in healthcare because you have something that's a hands-free device for an industry that's you know, entirely uh, hands-free. So from talking to surgeons and doctors, the application that they really wanted to see happen was video streaming. They wanted to be able to see through the eyes of their nurses when they weren't there, burn victims, um, you know, a lot of different use cases people were talking about. The ambulance setting and people were talking about um, trying to do these types of exams where you need where you need different types of specialists to see exactly how a patient's moving, how they're tremoring, to be able to diagnose them. Um, so we deployed that at a couple of hospitals in like Harvard satellite hospitals. And then after we found that Google Glass heated up way too fast, basically the battery drains in like an hour for this use case, and they weren't actually going to come out with new hardware fast enough, we decided to move to a... Um, mobile use case, because obviously phones are have great battery life. Um, not Actually, well, not great, but better than an hour, and then having yeah. to have a, a battery pack on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we actually like, shifted the, the product quite significantly, not just to the hospital setting, because it's really difficult to sell to hospitals, but we've built a product for primary care doctors. And essentially, what it does is, if you're in your primary care doctor's office, instead of having to get referred to a specialist, a dermatologist, or an orthopedic surgeon, we connected you. We connected your primary care doctor to the to these specialists in real time, and the idea being that when when if you actually have to go to the specialist, then you have the right imaging and the right sort of pre care until the appointment. Um, but 
the real cost savings come from just avoiding them entirely, right? Getting the dermatology diagnosis or the orthopedic diagnosis that, hey, I actually can't operate on you. You're only, you're going to have to, um, you're going to be able, you're going to have to manage this or heal this on your own. And that's kind of really where healthcare needs to move because you, yeah. you, you sort of have this process where people are waiting six weeks for an appointment. They go in and then they say, oh, you need to get your imaging. And then, oh, that's like a whole yeah. So you're like getting rid of the bottleneck, essentially, Yeah. between the different levels of healthcare. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to shift gears here um, to kind of learn a little bit more about some experiences that kind of shaped you and your passion and motivation along the way. Can you think of any instances in your life where you think that really helped define your character? When I think about really the most defining moment, it's, it's, a, it's a very corny one. I was um, in... Pakistan because my sister was doing a um, project in a squatter settlement because you know, she's she's a doctor so she's obviously been doing um, a lot of sort of public health related things for a while so backstory my grandmother is the one who brought uh, our my mom's side of the family to America she left her five young children with my grandfather which is obviously super bizarre in that time for you know, like a single dad scenario in Pakistan. But she came here and she had to convince her brother who had these political ambitions in Pakistan to you know, put that on hold, abort mission, and instead come to America. So she had to work super hard, kind of you know, did the whole like Burger King and made my, my grandfather eventually when he came here like be a taxi driver to like save up enough money for my, um, for my mom and all for, you know, her siblings to go to school. So for her, she was like, I went on an escape mission to from Pakistan to here. Why are you guys going back to Pakistan? So she was actually extremely angry with my sister for going back to Pakistan. She's like, "What are you going to do there? You know, we came to America. This is the best country, and you're like undoing my work." She wasn't like totally furious about it, but was but you know, was pretty mad. So um, I, on the other hand, really wanted to go back because I was this weird child in America who always had these little you know Pakistani dinners, which you know smell weird, and people would always make fun of you for. I mean, you know. Um, for that kind of stuff. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Pakistan and I'm going to find out why I'm weird. I'm going to have all these, I'm going to like understand suddenly I'm going to fit in there because that's obviously the thing that makes me weird here. And then obviously I was really sad when I got there and I was still weird there and I didn't fit in at all because we were the Americans. And I was like, how can they tell that we're American? We look like them. It's not like in America where they always ask me what ethnicity I am. Um, so anyways, when I was there, the actual, you know, to getting to the defining moment was that um, I was really young at the time, I think maybe 11 or 12, and I was in uh, just the streets there, and there was this little girl who I was playing with, and she just had a ball, and we were just kicking it around. I was really into soccer at the time, and uh, th my mom and dad were in a shop, I think, like getting cool fees, which is this type of Pakistani ice cream, which is amazing. Um, and they had gotten the ice creams and we were leaving. And uh, as I'm leaving, I'm just saying bye to the girl because I'm assuming like her parents are kind of like doing the same kind of thing. And uh, she comes up to me and asks me for money. And I was really shocked because I was going from suburban America to a girl who I thought was my friend asking me for money. And uh, I was really shocked and I, you know, started crying immediately because I was like okay that means she doesn't have parents and then I'm, you know I'm going to my parents and you know saying oh like give her some money and of course they do but that doesn't solve the problem obviously like mm -hmm. this this 
person who looked exactly like me, um, who's also like you know, really young and, and vulnerable, is is in this, this horrible situation. So that's was kind of the impetus for me to you know start the nonprofit that I did uh, in high school, um, and sort of why I think it's so important for people who are super privileged in America um, at large and you know also at Stanford to focus on things that are going to have an impact for, for people like her because you know there's not there's not a lot of people who are in the Fortune 500 companies who are you know vouching for the street kids in Pakistan or you know the street kids in America so I think that for, for people who have had that experience where they know that uh, what they've been given is not necessarily deserved, um, they should try and give back in some way. That's a, that's a really good story. Yeah, thank you. And it makes so much sense. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, so how did you transition? What was the, the moment when you trans decided to move on from the Teal Fellowship and come to Stanford and take your education and interest in healthcare to the next level? Sure. So um, the company that I worked on for the Teal Fellowship really wasn't very technical, if you think about it, right? We're just building apps. Um, and what I actually applied to the fellowship with, uh, but didn't work on, was a company related to um, embryo engineering, which is basically the idea that um, basically we, we, we've, we haven't really applied any technology to the, the process of fertility, right? The, most people are born naturally. There's not a lot of deviation from that besides this there's a very small slice of the population you know when they're infertile we have a, like a suite of technology that we can use to help them become fertile and um, basically what, what I have always been interested in is what about the, like the idea of artificial wombs what about the idea of um, commercial surrogacy so the idea that if you are a woman and you don't want to get get pregnant right now but you want to have a child why isn't it more normal for um, you know there to be just a service that allows women who do want to get pregnant to be pregnant for uh, someone else. So I was basically really interested in this whole um, arena, but obviously as a 17-year-old wasn't going to go try and disrupt uh, how humans are born. Yeah. So I went into more what I thought was a practical area, which was, um, you know, these, okay, so now you have this like it was what I thought was a, was, a, was a more sellable story was, oh, look at this young person who's, you know, building apps for, for healthcare. It's like, okay, that, that could actually go well. But I didn't think, look at this young person who's, you know, who's never had a child, trying to reinvent how we have children. So um, I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to table that vision for a, a later date. So that now is that later date is I'm, I'm setting CS and genetics because I want to understand um you know, what, what are the ways that we can re-engineer humans? What are the ways that we can um, you know, eliminate uh, people from getting a lot of these heartbreaking diseases that are so common right now that we have to treat in these really complicated and um, forever kind of ways, right? There's all these drugs that are coming out that you have to, you're going to be leashed to for life. You have to take them every single day and they're extremely expensive. What if you could just select the child that didn't have that disease? Now, a topic like this is obviously very controversial. Mm -hmm. So how did you kind of wrestle with that personally and come to the conclusion that this is something that will benefit people in the long run? Yeah, so I don't think that I have all the answers. I don't think that I'm necessarily right about everything. But um, I do think that we're spending inordinate amounts on trying to cure cancer, right, in the billions of dollars. And I think it's a shame that we're not spending... Uh, 
even a fraction of that money on what are preventative strategies. So this is what I think is the most basic preventative strategy. Instead of letting someone um, get a disease over a lifetime, what if you could select the embryo that was an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude less likely to ever develop that disease? And if you have a set of embryos, which are basically siblings, um, that haven't that are you know they're not even in the in the uh, thousand cell stage. Um, if you could just select at that stage, this is the sibling that uh, we should have because we're going to implant one of them. Where you're never implanting all of all of the embryos. You're always there's always this process of you know, having to discard them. What if you could just select the one that was much less likely to get the disease? I don't know too much about the embryo selection process. Could you mm-hmm. describe that in a little bit more detail? when people go through that process, how many embryos are produced and how is the selection done right now? Sure. And maybe also, like, who's the type of person that would go about getting this service in the first place? Mm-hmm. Why is this such a big problem for them? Sure, so um, the people who go through in vitro fertilization are people who are older usually, um, you know, 35 to 45 plus because they just have had troubles con- trouble conceiving. That's that's maybe the bulk of it. But there definitely are a, um, a fraction of the people who go through IVF who are, who are younger, who have this phenomenon of unexplained infertility, um, which by the name, people don't know why they're infertile, so what they just have to go through uh, further testing. So how it works is um, essentially you have uh, an egg that is extracted from the mother, and you have sperm that are extracted from the father, and the whole, the uh, um, pejorative term is test tube baby, and you kind of put them into it, so you don't actually put, put them in a test tube. But um, yeah, you, you combine the egg and the sperm to form, form an embryo. And the, the process that's sort of onerous is obviously the egg extraction. We, we all know that the sperm extraction is not difficult. So the egg extraction takes, you know, three to six months, potentially to get enough eggs depending on how old you are you get a lower egg yield as you age and the process of getting the egg is injecting hormones on a um, very very specific schedule to um, allow the eggs to be extracted and yeah so once you once you have the eggs and sperm you you combine them into embryos so on average you need at least uh, five but most most couples get between 10 and 20 embryos and once you have these embryos, then you go through the process of actually implantation, which it's uh, again very you know quite straightforward. You take one of the embryos and you uh, put them in the woman's uterus. Um, in the past, they used to have problems with um, multiple births because each process of implanting the embryo into the uterus has a cost associated with it. Uh, that's in the thousands, unfortunately, in in America. So people, what they would do to save money is that they would put um, two or three embryos in at the same time because essentially you have a 30% on average rate for each embryo to implant. So they're thinking, okay, if we put three in, then you know this is probably going to result in a child. But then the problem is, what if two or three do? Then you have you know twins and triplets. So um, now there, there's actually it's it, it's become uh, more of a standard to just to just implant uh, one embryo at a time. So you, you have a greater rate of singleton births, which is just you have one child instead of you know twins or triplets. And so out of those. 10 different embryos that you were talking about. How, how is the picking done? It's just a random right now? Yeah, so, so right now there isn't any process um, for selecting embryos. There's something called um, PGD, prenatal genetic diagnosis, which is where you have a 
you have two parents and one of them or both of them is, has already been pre-screened to be a carrier for a certain and it's a single gene disease then that's the one category where sort of in genetics we, I think we have you know, tip of the iceberg very much a single gene disease so you have this one gene and um, you know that one of the parents possesses it and you know that you're looking for that in the embryo so basically that's that's what PGD is. You you're looking for this one specific gene, and you're just selecting against it because it causes something really devastating, like cystic fibrosis or. Um, uh, just a quick question. So you just take the DNA and you sequence it from each embryo. That's what happens. Yes, yeah, so basically then... the the embryo is. Um, so basically the embryo transitions into like a day five or day six blastocyst, mm -hmm. which is just another term for the stage of the of the uh, embryo and then you take uh, a sample from that from the blastocyst and you can either take it from the trophectoderm which is this layer outside of um, the egg or uh, you can take it from the polar body and so yeah you basically now have like between like five and twenty cells and you take those five or twenty cells and you sequence them and th the process of sequencing is, is actually super complicated because right now you only get uh, a good sequence from something like a blood sample um, so, by the way, these services that try and send you a sequence for like from like a spit sample or sweat sample is like completely garbage. They're sending you a sequence, but it's not actually something that's like cl usually clinically uh, useful. So yeah, um, getting it's not very accurate usually. Or yeah, yeah, it's just it's yeah. not accurate. Um, so um, you get you take you take these five or twenty cells and you sequence them, and that process of sequencing is complicated because now you're trying to get something a very accurate read. On extremely small samples, so you have to do all this like very fancy magical statistical techniques to actually get an accurate read. But they're able to do that, and um, and yeah, then you're, you're you're basically searching searching for a specific um, gene that you want to get rid of. And actually, you don't even need to do sequencing for a single gene. What you can do is you just do a um, there's a certain type of like antibody assays where you're where you're not actually, you don't actually have to sequence the entire genome. You literally are just looking for basically you have like an antibody of this like protein that attaches to this specific gene. And you're like, oh, there we go. Mm -hmm. It's it's like it's not it's not like exactly like a pregnancy test. It sort of sort of is like a pregnancy test if, you, if that's something people are familiar with. But yeah, it, it basically just like you you have a you have an indicator for whether this gene is. The, this gene you're not you're trying to select against is there or not, and then you can select for it. So what, for what I'm doing, you definitely do need to do, use um, sequencing because you're not just looking at one gene; you're looking at uh, potentially thousands of genes. But we actually only needed 30 genes to look for Alzheimer's. Now, could this technology be combined with something like CRISPR? If you know, at, at this point in the embryo's lifespan, if there's only a small number of cells. Is it possible to use CRISPR to get rid of these deleterious genes as opposed to not selecting this embryo? Yeah, so, so CRISPR is definitely an extremely interesting technology. Um, I think that it's not... Uh, I think it would be difficult to apply it to our use case right now because if you, if you look at CRISPR, there's sort of three situations. So one, if you want to CRISPR a single gene, then why don't you just select against it and do what we're already doing? So it doesn't really make a lot of sense unless you have, you know, if you have two or three embryos and um, all three of them are, you know, 100% of them have the deleterious gene, then maybe it makes sense to get rid of, to, you know, to CRISPR that one, that one um, locus. But usually that's not the case. Usually you can, you can just select for the embryo without it. The second case is um, you'd, you want to use CRISPR on, on many genes, in which case 
you don't want to use CRISPR because right now CRISPR has some off-target effects and it would probably be extremely difficult to CRISPR multiple genes and that's what we're doing. We're looking at what's the, what's the embryo that's likely to get disease if you're looking at multiple genes across the entire genome. So it probably would be uh, a little bit out of scope of where we are currently with CRISPR to try and go in and you know, target all these different locations on the genome. So yeah, that's kind of transitioning into what you're doing now, which is working on polygenetic disorders that you're trying to select for. So can you talk a little bit about your work there? Sure. So yeah, like I said, the state of the science right now is that people are, are focusing on these single gene disorders. And even within single gene disorders, a very small fraction of people going through IVF actually do that type of screening. I think it's um, in a neighborhood of like 5% of people going through IVF. Um, and then I think the number of that even the number of people going going through IVF uh, while it's growing is still quite small. I think the number of babies born in the U.S. through IVF is something like um, three million or so a year. Um, so, anyways, yeah. So, so what we're doing is we're taking uh, sequencing data and we're saying of of what we know of the genetic sequence of each of your embryos, how can we select for the for the one that's least likely to get a certain disease and the disease that we feel is closest to being able to do this for is actually Alzheimer's. And obviously it's a little bit um, it's a little bit um, futuristic in the sense that okay I'm having a baby but I'm sl- I'm thinking about what are they what disease are they going to get when they're 85. Um, so it, it, it obviously would be more beneficial to be thinking about things that are earlier onset, right? Because maybe even in that child's lifetime there's a cure for Alzheimer's that, that develops. So but but yeah what we do is we say um, for Alzheimer's for a disease that we know there's about 30 SNPs that um, have good enough odds ratios, which are basically effect sizes for each of these um, specific SNPs, so single nucleotide polymorphisms, basically an A that's turning into a C or a C that's turning into a G. For each of these locations that through really large studies called genome-wide association studies, we know based on this case control model, case being diseased and non-diseased individuals, we know that these specific genes have these specific effect sizes. and we know specifically that people with this makeup get the disease at this age. Um, you're able to get this good discrimination. We're able to say, okay, people with this makeup, this, this setup of A's and T's and C's and G's, um, are going to get it. Are going to get this disease either uh, earlier or later. So you kind of you can kind of divide the embryos up into this like low risk, uh, high risk situation. And the way that we got our results is that we're just taking the delta between. The, the low risk and the median or like the average. Okay, if there was no selection, you know, which embryo would you just pick on average? And um, yeah, we're pretty excited because we, what we're seeing is that on average, if you do this type of selection, you can reduce the risk of Alzheimer's, passing on Alzheimer's by 50% and you can delay the onset um, by six and a half years, which is, you know, pretty substantial when you think about a disease like Alzheimer's where it costs, um, you know, from five hundred thousand to uh, you know one point two million dollars to manage over the life over a lifetime in the United States, um, and if you if you can delay something six and a half years for a disease that's so that's so late onset, you know, it might just be that that the person passes from natural causes versus you know children having to um, difficult period of um, you know having to see that their parents decline and take them to a nursing home and. Um, you know, all of, all of those really hard human things to manage. 
How are you measuring the success? Because you don't really know if the embryos that you've like selected for mm-hmm. do get Alzheimer's, right? Like you won't find out for a long time, but mm-hmm. is it just based on looking at the genome and statistics? Yeah, so what we're doing is not actually in the wet lab. It's all simulations. It's all, you know, it's all, it's all CS. So basically what, what we're trying to bring to light is this, is this just the idea that this is quite feasible right now based on the data that we have. Only in the last year or two have, um, have, has there been the convergence in both um, being able to do single cell sequencing with very high accuracy. That's only been possible in the last, you know, couple of years. And you also have this, the second thing that's converging is really large data sets of um, of these case control models for diseases like Alzheimer's. Um, basically, the the issue was that for a very long time the the data set sizes were you know 10k, 20k, 50k, which really isn't large enough. You need something really in the maybe 100 or 200k plus to have the right power to be able to detect these smaller variants. Because if you have a single gene, you know it's it's, it's you don't really need a huge uh, set of people to be, to, to make it clear that, oh, that's the gene that's causing the disease. If you have 10, 20, 30, thousands of genes, suddenly it's it's a lot harder to decouple which gene is actually increasing your risk versus decreasing your risk. And then if you add that on top of the fact that, you know, now we understand epigenetics, so basically this idea that your environment modifies your genome, it, you know, that even further uh, fuzzies it because yeah. there's actual modification, chemical modifications happening to your genome, right? And then on top of that, you obviously have this disparity in just how people treat the, treat themselves, right? So some people are on a great diet, some people are on a horrible diet, some people are exercising, some people aren't exercising. Some people, you know, obviously education has a, has a impact on how you decide to treat yourself. You know, your poverty level or your wealth level impacts, again, your just ability, even if you have the education, to actually act on it. So. When people, when scientists do these studies, they have to control for all of these things, and they have to still somehow get signal on this like super, super, super um, micro level of okay, is this A or this T? After all of that, is that making an effect on someone getting a disease? So, you need a lot of people. Is a short answer, and because sequencing has finally gotten cheap enough, these studies have um, have gotten uh, large enough just in the last couple of years. How far do you think uh, we are from actually seeing this in implementation? And are the roadblocks mostly data sets, or are they associated with uh, sequencing and other yeah, diagnoses? Well, I would definitely hope to see this uh, out in the world in the next 10 or 20 years. But um, you know, my experience with healthcare is everything takes a lot longer than you, th- you think it will, even for something that I was working on, which was uh, I thought extremely straightforward. It's it's a simple digital product. It's easy to deploy. Um, it's quite cheap compared to other technology that hospitals are buying. Um, extremely good uh, profit margins in terms of, you know, you buy this thing and you're gonna you're gonna immediately get your money back. And I thought it was a very short amount of time. So from my experiences and how hard that was, I would expect that this is you know obviously several orders of magnitude more difficult than that. Yeah. And now is probably a good time to you know pivot and talk about your other projects, um, which is in the dermatology space and it's very different from, you know, this embryo selection. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. So, um, yeah, Sebastian Thrun, who, so Sebastian Thrun has this, has this little lab and he has a couple of PhDs and what they're working on is uh, how do you do skin cancer detection? And the way that they do it is they take this huge data set of skin images that are, you know, some are scraped from Google, some are sta- scraped from Stanford medical literature, and you know, they just did some deep learning on it, and they 
were able to discriminate with the accuracy equivalent to a dermatologist, just, you know, with an AI, um, whether or not someone has has skin cancer or not. And I think that's extremely powerful and and interesting. But the problem is that with something as um, life-threatening as skin cancer, I think on on a practical level, people are going to actually just go into their dermatologist because they're not going to want to trust an AI on whether or not they're going to die. But what I do think is that for, for, for lower acuity skin conditions like rosacea, psoriasis, eczema, uh, or in a lot of other skin conditions that sometimes primary care doctors misdiagnose um, because you, know, you need that dermatologist or that specialist to be able to actually verify this, this or that. And what we focused on was from dermatologists and from primary care doctors, what are the specific uh, conditions that they misdiagnose often? Those, and that's what we trained on. And then we also focused on STDs, right? So that you have you know, this, this host of STDs that you can't just diagnose visually. And I think that um, by focusing on that, if you, if you build a classifier that can distinguish between these inflammatory conditions and between STDs, people who are ashamed to actually go in in person, they would actually prefer, oh yeah, I'd rather have an, an, an AI diagnose my STD versus you know, dealing with this burden of you know, having to check out. It's similar to what you feel when you have to check out with something like um, you know, birth control, right? You just you don't want to have to see someone face to face. So I think that's a, a really interesting place where people are actually looking to interact with machines versus looking to interact with humans. And that seems like the most natural place to insert an AI. And, and do you hope executing something like this that would be consumer facing or primarily in like a primary cares, primary care doctor's um, hands, mm-hmm. like this kind of tool? Yeah, so for this, is, it, this isn't something I'm trying to uh, commercialize, it's definitely research, I, but I want to open the door, I want to kind of open Pandora's box and say, look, this is something where you really, really need to democratize access to care, right? You don't want people going around spreading STDs or managing the wrong inflammatory skin condition. You want them to actually know how to manage it and you want them to, you know, be able to get get the right treatment as fast as possible. Um, And an AI is a really great way to do that because you can distribute on on people's phones and people already know how to take photos. And if you're, if you, you know, build some more processing on top to regularize the image and make, help the user take uh, an image where they can get the best results, um, that's kind of what I want to show in, in sort of like a paper in a very academic type setting, and then I'm sure people at the GSB, you know, here and elsewhere will uh, will run with the idea. But you know, like I said, for me, I've already done the whole like digital health journey, and I know I know what that's like. Um, so for me, what I'm more interested in doing in the future is more on this, uh, yeah, the, the the embryo engineering side, which I know is a tougher road, but is kind of like it's just it's just my my ambition. I think it's something that's super under addressed in terms of. Um, just like delta and quality of life that you could have if this was adopted on a nationwide or international scale. And I think China right now is actually super ahead of the U.S. So some of the tests that people in China are doing on on embryos is a little bit, um, I think, underbaked in terms of there's not a huge amount of science around it. Um, but I still think it's it's good that they're as a culture more accepting of the idea that uh, it makes sense to use data and sequence and information that we have about which uh, embryo is going to be healthier to select for them. Obviously, you don't want to be doing this for, you know, aesthetics or, um, you know, th- things, things like that. But I mean, for when it, for when it comes to this, this, this something that would affect your quality of life so drastically about, you know, whether or not 
you're going to have like a congenital heart defect, whether or not you're going to have this really devastating cognitive decline at a young age, um, or even at, even at a later age. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to screen against embryos that have those things. And so where do you see yourself, you know, taking this passion in, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now? Are you interested in, uh, you know, maybe running your own research lab here? Or are you interested in commercializing this? I think I would definitely be a little bit more on the, on the commercial side. I think that, um, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't, I don't know for sure. But I, I see myself more trying to figure out how do you transition um, all of this really powerful uh, information we, we're, we're, we're getting now and probably going to be even getting way more in the future into into the clinic, into you know, parents actually being able to um, be certain that they're going to be getting a child that's not going to have uh, you know, really you know, de- devastating cognitive disease or something else that's running in their family that um, right now they're just having to play Russian roulette with, but instead they could, they could make a decision that's more evidence-based. That was awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Imagine Human. Don't forget to check out our website at imaginehuman.com for additional resources and links relevant to this episode. As always, we really appreciate your support, so don't forget to share with family and friends and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. We're always looking forward to meeting interesting people to interview for Imagine Human. So if you know someone, please contact us on social media or email us at imaginehuman17 at gmail.com.